Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. What I think is really interesting about CNN in the past two years is there's been this attempt to more explicitly stand up for facts and, and truthful information and decency. And decency is different from truth, right? Like decency is a, you know, not not using sick and racist slur as, as, as nicknames. It's wishing the president would spell words right, like wanting kind of traditions and decency in the country. And, and I like that CNN stand up for those values, but mostly stand up for, for facts and accuracy. I think what's most important is that in 10 or 20 years, we're still doing this regardless of who's in power. That's mm. the most important thing. If, if we stop doing that, then we fail. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The Fifth Column. column, column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster of Freethink. I'm I'm delighted to be here today. This I'm your guide, your conductor as we run train on the news cycle. Is that appropriate? <laughs> is, is that fine? I think it's okay to say that sort of thing now, Dear right? I, I, I certainly fine. wouldn't. You might be able to get I'm away sorry. With it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, hopefully I can get away with it. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'm joined by Michael Moynihan, who's on remote. He is someplace on the West Coast, apparently on assignment for Vice. Actually, I yeah. saw him on my television, so I'm sure... He's on assignment for Vice. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in LA. I'm in. Um, I'm right now in uh, Beverly Hills at uh, in my hotel room. Oh, so. most excellent. Great. Not Hollywood though, uh, despite your nickname. No, no. I mean, you know, I'm not going to battle the, the hobos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to. By the way, I said this to somebody last. I'm trying to bring the word uh, hobo back. Cause it's so much more quaint and like kind of, you know, they play jugs and you know, they, they whistle into their jugs and they're sweet and they dispense wisdom, but it's really not catching on. Actually derived from Hoboken, which is where the train across the country starts. Is that true? There yeah. you go. Yeah. I, I want to say quickly, by the way, in the, in the uh, realm of fake news, um, I was at uh, our um, office here today mm-hmm. in, in uh, Venice beach and the vice vice has an office there. And uh, someone shared an article with me, the provenance of this actually comes from the Hollywood Reporter, but of course it was on Breitbart, and it was about how um, Vice had set up these. I don't know what the purpose of this is, but they set up these, uh, you know, uh, chain link fences to keep the uh, homeless encampments away from away from the oh office. My. And somehow this is hypocritical. I don't know why, but it, tur- <laughs> I, I, it turns out that this is like a block away and has nothing to do with wow. this. I asked people, literally a block away. So I walked up the street and I, I, I assumed that I could get a, a lot of uh, Twitter um, traction if I just filmed it and uh, and did like a stand up and narrated to see how far yeah. this fence was. It had nothing to do with was. But um, and then I was like, you know, do I do I demand a correction from uh, Breitbart? Whoever who's running that now? Joel Pollack. I don't think they care about corrections very much. So I, I didn't. But just so you know, that's fake news. I think it's fair to demand a correction. Um, but I, I should finish my introductions. I was nearly there. Um, Anthony Fisher, politics. Uh, we're free for we're I understand. Free but, uh, Anthony Fisher, politics editor at Insider. I don't know if I said the thing about you being a national correspondent for Vice News tonight. Our friend Matt Welch is in D.C., but I do have one more introduction. Our special guest for the evening is the man of the hour, Mr. Brian Stelter, who's the chief media correspondent at CNN, host of Reliable Sources. He also has a, a, a newsletter by the same name, which is quite indispensable and is read by many people all over the world and the interwebs. <laughs> Brian, thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you it's uh, it's going to come out late tonight, this newsletter, because I get to spend time talking to you all. 
I wonder, am I like, am I Matt? Am I Matt's fill-in? No, we're going to be nicer to you than we would to Matt. So yeah, you're the star. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Okay, well then I will not be Matt's fill-in. Yeah, and I just, <laughs> I just uh, left a happy hour where Oliver Darcy was apparently uh, filling in for me as I left. He is so social. I love that about Oliver. <laughs> he goes to all the cool parties I don't know about anymore. That's how I know I'm getting older. What I love about Oliver Darcy yeah. is he shows, and there's a couple people that do this, and uh, somebody I'm thinking of, two people actually at the Washington Post that I can think of, who came from sort of right of center ideological publications to become just sort of straight news guys. Because wasn't he at The he Blaze? Was. Am the, I wrong in thinking Blaze, that? The Blaze, I used to get into wonderful conversations with him when he worked at The Blaze. Yes, that's right. So he did work at The Blaze. And um, I can think of, you know, Dave Weigel, who I used to work with and uh, came from Reason Magazine. And uh, what's his name? Uh, who worked at National Review, who's also at The Post. What, why am I blanking? Uh, Robert Costa. Oh, yeah, Robert oh, Costa. Also, Betsy, Betsy Woodruff, also from the National Review, is now at the Daily Beast. Yes, and uh, they're all about as uh, straight as can be. Now I'm texting Oliver, trying to find out what party he was at. Now yeah. I'm so jealous. <laughs> uh, but I, but I love him. He uh, has energized our media team so much. He has so much to bring. Well, it's funny that you made a joke about your age because you're you're oh. 21 years old. There's no, media, I wish. Media Wonderkind, formerly of the New York Times, where you started working when you were five after you <laughs> yeah. sold this this company you began in preschool, yeah. uh, which, is, why do, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> now, most of that is fake news, why do not I have, entirely, but directionally, like it's, it's at least linear. Directionally, right? it's accurate. Yeah. I just uh, marked the 15-year anniversary of launching my blog. I, I had forgotten I'd been 15 years, uh, but then Adweek, which owns the blog now, asked me to write a column about it. Uh, this was TV Newser, which I launched 15 years ago, oh, which yeah. then yeah. got the New York Times to notice me, got me hired at the Times. And then, of course, working at the Times gets CNN to notice me. It's, it's funny how these things work. Uh, definitely not a uh, trajectory that I plotted out, but... Yeah. I'm happy it worked out. And we also, we have a lot of stuff in common because you have a, a young daughter and I also have a young daughter. Mine's How many months? 13 months. Awesome. It's remarkable. I'm still not sleeping. I don't know if you are. Sunny well, is 20 months. Anyway. No, Sunny is 20 months. And I just checked the Nest Cam because she just went to sleep. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, uh, I think it'll be a good night. She sleeps 11 to 12 hours on a good night. Boom. Um, but there's bad nights too. Most, yeah. mostly good nights. Uh, we have, we, I think we have trained ourselves to be willing to listen to her cry and, and let her work through it. Yeah. Um, I'm not so, there yet. I'm not there yet. My daughter starts weeping and I'm crooning, I'm crooning to her. I literally thought you were talking about yourself, <laughs> that you're not there yet. You can't work There's through the crying. There's different kinds of crying. You have to learn the different kinds of crying, yes. right? Yeah. That, if it's a scream, yeah. then I'm going in there. Yeah. I want to admit, admit something horrible. My daughter uh, is seven years old. Uh, she is the funniest person I know. She's like legitimately hilarious, <laughs> as I think Camille uh, and Anthony can attest to. Sure. But um, I break the sleeping thing now because uh, she can't go to sleep without me there. Oh wow! Yeah, you know, or or somebody else, but or Joanna, you know. But um, but she can't go go to sleep without me there, and I, I don't know how to because I feel so bad. She's like, I don't go. And I feel horrible. So I, I end up staying there and she's going to be 25 and I'm going to be there. <laughs> but would there may be a problem at that point. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably. I mean, I'd prefer it if at 25, if I was the person there. So. I mean, a couple of nights ago, Sonny helped me write the newsletter. She, she wouldn't go to bed. It was 915. So I picked her up. We sat on my lap. We worked on it together. I, I'd like to blame her for the typos that night. Brian, what is your work day like? I mean, you're going home writing the newsletter. And by the way, the, the, the sort of 
second question here is how much does your wife hate you? But <laughs> I mean, you start the day at a sort of early hour, I'd imagine. You've got the weekend thing. You've got to be on call if, if, if CNN needs you. And you got to write at night. I mean, what is this? What is an average day for you like? I've definitely well, seen you on air at like 6 a.m. in the morning. Yes, it it um, there's no two days that are alike, though. That's the that's the hard part about this question. Here's the thing. I think CNN for me at CNN, I'm either at 100 or zero. At the New York Times, I was always at 50. Things were always pretty level. Like I always had a couple stories I was working on and it never got too crazy. CNN, you're either the busiest reporter there for that day because something crazy happened on your beat uh, or you're zero, meaning there's nothing that's happening on my beat that is worth doing on TV that day. And I can chill at home and hang out with Sonny. However, the newsletter is the one thing that's constant mm -hmm. and the show is the other thing that's constant on Sunday. Those are the constants. Everything else, you know, it's like a wave, you know, you have to learn how to ride the waves and you have to, you know, it's kind of unpredictable when the surf is going to crest and when it's going to get really intense. But then once you're, once you're in it, you know, it's going to eventually calm down again. Mm -hmm. So when CNN sues the government about Jim Acosta's press pass, you know, I'm not going to be home for a couple of days, uh, except to sleep. But, you know, you know, at some point the court case is going to get settled and, you know, you're back to back to a calm seas. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my life at CNN. And, and then the newsletter is the one constant during the week. Thankfully, Sonny goes to bed around seven, hopefully on a good night. Jamie goes to bed by eight. She's a morning traffic reporter, so she has to go to bed early. And that's when the fun begins. That's when the writing begins um, or at least begins in earnest. So in that way, it actually kind of works. It kind of works after after the girls go to bed. I, I actually would prefer that we just did like only the kind of how how it gets made, mm -hmm. how it gets so made. I yeah. suspect some people would be angry with us because there are so many things right. going on in the world. Um, and even even with that, I'd love for us to just do some like meta industry analysis stuff. I'm the meta constellation guy of people in the room. I'm Mr. Um, meta. Yeah, I mean, I want to do this sometimes because I get, you know, I get even sort of blue checkmark people on Twitter uh, giving me a hard time. So I got I got uh, one yesterday. Um, I did this uh, story with Ann Coulter. It was everywhere. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was everywhere. It did, it did really well. I was really excited about it. Ann called me a liar on Twitter last night. What did night. you do? What did you do right? Uh, she she <laughs> called me a liar and I didn't respond on Twitter, but I sent her an email and we've been having a nice exchange. Um, but someone did this. This is the hardest thing to how it gets made, where uh, she said, you know, uh, the drugs coming over the border. And I think at one point, um, you know, this long soliloquy, and I said, you know, th these drugs are, most of these drugs are not coming over the border, they're ports of entry. I challenged her on on her idea that that everybody on the uh, federal payroll was living high in the hog, <laughs> and we have to make a piece for television, right? Yeah. So that's going to be a four or five minute piece. And so I get a bunch of messages yesterday on Twitter, or one in particular that bugged me, I didn't respond to it. But said, you know, why why didn't you challenge uh, Ann Coulter when she said this and blah, blah, blah. Now, it's one thing had I let that go. And, you know, you can't sort of fact check everybody all the time. And Brian knows this when you get this sort of farrago of information, flurry of information on TV. But you also what I do is not live and I have to cut it. And people have to cut it. And you can't keep me challenging some somebody all the time in right. the piece. But people get very upset about this. And they say, you know, no, 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 your job here is to fact check it because we don't trust the people that are watching your show to actually be able to do that themselves. And my idea here is, yeah, I, I do because it's a better conversation. But I need to 
get what she is telling the president, what she's talking to the president about, or what her ideas that she's implanting in, in, in people's brains that are, of people surrounding the president, because that's the interesting thing. Me fighting her on these small points isn't, but people get really mad about this stuff. And I hate to go back and say, no, 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 this is how it's made. And I can't always do that. When you've done some of this stuff, you can see it. I could see when the cuts were happening. Mm. I could imagine what your response was actually to something that she <laughs> yeah. says. And then it sort of moves on yeah. to another point. I think for a lot of other people, it can be much harder. And this perhaps leads into something that I definitely wanted to talk to you about, Brian. What journalism is in sort of a fundamental sense and the way that people relate to journalism. Um, and I'm reminded of something that I stumbled across and I, I shared just before we, we did this today. Um, it's a, a speech that you gave uh, at a conference uh, uh, last, not last year. This is in 2017. I don't remember. Just after the inauguration. But it was a conversation about us moving into this post-truth era. We have to imagine what this new administration can and could do to further delegitimize and disrupt the press. Uh, we're seeing it in the press briefing room uh, on a daily basis. We're seeing it on Trump's Twitter feed. Um, we have to imagine these scenarios. If I can be blunt, we have to imagine how bad it could get. And I don't think a lot of journalists want to or have done that. I don't think a lot of newsroom leaders have necessarily done that. And I you, remember this now. Yeah, so good. I'm glad. I was really nervous because it was Harvard. Um, I was speaking at Harvard. Yeah, yeah, highfalutin folks, but you, I think you held your own. Well, but I you tried. Went on, you went on to say... Um, I'm, I'm rereading the speech now. It actually, um, I didn't embarrass myself yeah. too badly. You went on to say um, something that I think is important. Of course, the Obama administration withheld information, pursued leakers, was not a friend of the press. Uh, but again, Trump may make Obama look like an amateur on this front. So let's not hesitate to talk about the possibilities. Uh, talk about the storm clouds of authoritarianism. Uh, let's not uh, make the mistake of that failure of imagination. I, I think that's an interesting starting point here because we're at the, the beginning of the third year of the Trump administration. Yes, happy anniversary, everybody. Yeah. Two what years. Do, what do you think? <laughs> uh, since inauguration we weekend. Made it. Yeah, what do you think? Storm clouds of authoritarianism is very strong language. Do you think we've seen that? Do you think we're seeing that? Where do we stand right now. I remember this speech because I had said a version of it on television the week before. I'd asked all these questions about what was going to happen with, with, with Trump. Was he going to create fake news every day and call us fake news every day? And was he going to come up with fake stats and facts and statistics? Mm -hmm. Was his government going to do that? And, and all of that obviously has happened. Um, but I'm actually, you, you know, you caught me on an optimistic day. You caught me on a positive day. Some of the worst fears have not come true, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about the last two years, what did journalists fear two years ago? What did media lawyers fear two years ago? Uh, I think they feared journalists in prison for not giving up sources. I think they feared uh, even more opaqueness than we've seen in terms of government access, et cetera. Um, I personally expected reporters to be kicked out of the White House. And obviously Trump tried once and he failed and that lost and maybe he'll try again, but he'll, he'll lose again. Uh, some of the worst fears have not come true. So what I was trying to do two years ago was to say, let's let's use our imaginations to imagine, you know, let's 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 foresee how bad this could get. And let's look at ways to mitigate that and and also recognize that most people want a robust, vibrant, 
news environment. Most people want to know what's going on. They don't want to live in echo chambers all the time. They don't, they don't want to be tricked and deceived by uh, hyper-partisan news outlets all the time. Um, that's what I, was, I think I was trying to say back then. I certainly was more worried two years ago about some of those adverse outcomes than I am today. Not to say I'm not worried at all, mm -hmm. but I was more worried two years ago. Um, I think none of us knew if Trump was going to, in what direction he was going to go and how strong he was going to turn out. And is it fair to say right now on January, whatever, of 2019, that he's not that strong? Is that fair to say? I, I think it is. Yeah, I, I mean, think it is. Got his back up against the wall with yeah. a shutdown of his own making. And for the first time, his own base uh, polls are actually dropping. They're dropping and he misspelling hamburgers. It's, <laughs> it's been a tough week and a tough month and a tough year for him. And uh, it didn't have to go that way, right? It didn't have to go that way. It could have gone very differently. He could have been very strong in ways that I think authoritarian language would be appropriate to use. Mm -hmm. It's not to say it should never be used. There are certainly uh, times when I think he he's a wannabe autocrat. Um, but I think some of the worst fears of journalism experts haven't come to pass, which mm -hmm. is interesting. One of the things that the, the reasons I start there is because while I talked about some of the things we have in common, uh, I didn't mention that we're both, you know, products of the Maryland University system, et yeah. cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the things that I think I have, I don't have in common with you and probably don't have in common with lots of people who are in the journalism space is yeah. I'm, I'm probably less enamored with the, the rather high minded sort of <laughs> description of what it is that journalists do. And how they do it. Um, I and peeked at your computer screen and the, can I tell you what the words that said? The temple Where? of journalism. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. Oh, my God. The I wasn't, temple of I wasn't going to use that phrase, but I'll use it now. He's a reporter. Um, no, just because he's on TV doesn't mean he's not a reporter. <laughs> I mean, those are the only words that were in <laughs> yeah. really large font. Yeah. No, that's just those are headers. Um, but but. I you don't subscribe about, to the temple, yeah, but I've journalism. certainly talked about I've certainly talked about my my major concern with journalism being that journalism sort of regards itself as almost a sacred order, like a priesthood. And for me, like journalism is a profession. It is something that humans do, humans who have perspectives, which means that sort of the pretense of objectivity, this veneer of objectivity that we often try to equate with journalism, or perhaps right. more so with reporting, if we're going to draw a distinction there. Um, is, is always something that we're sort of groping at, and it's an affect that we're trying to achieve. But the reality is always necessarily something different because we are, we're people. So we respond to particular things. We worry that this particular president might be uniquely bad. I mean, I wonder for yourself, as you've had to imagine what sort of the worst could be and then experience sort of where things are today, how you go about calibrating your your approach to journalism and if and if i'm reading you properly my thinking is that if i were to ask you for a definition of journalism you might use a word like objective and you might refer to things like truth and facts which i'm good with truth and facts i just know that there's some <laughs> nuance around those things i try desperately to avoid the objective conversation because i don't think i'm a subscriber the way that many others are uh, in the profession, hmm. I, I suppose I would say we're imperfect. We're mm -hmm. writing a rough, rough draft every day. Uh, we're not quite getting it right every day, but tomorrow's going to be better. And that's the profession. And it is not a priesthood. And uh, the folks that get up on their high horse about journalism sometimes should be knocked down. And it's good when they're knocked down a peg because that brings us closer to the audience. <laughs> However, you're making me think I probably don't express that enough on the program I have. 
So I'm, it's interesting to, to hear you talk, talk about it that way. I have to admit sometimes once in a while without naming names of guests, when you get into speech mode where someone's giving a speech about how important journalism is and how sacred it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm rolling the eyes in the back of my head, but I'm not showing it to the viewer. <laughs> and maybe I should find the right word to indicate that to the viewer that I'm not necessarily buying what they're selling. Uh, but then again, I mean, I sometimes give those speeches too, in some version of those speeches, when trying to defend the craft against attacks from the outside. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a tension that I definitely feel now, right? Criticizing the media makes it better, but there's this role of also defending the press against these ridiculous outside attacks and pressures. And I think in, in this age when you're being called the enemy of the people, defending the press takes on more of a, uh, takes on more time, more, more of a role. Uh, that's happened, I think, across the media beat. Journalists trying to explain why we do what we do and, and why it's imperfect but worth preserving. But yeah, I think, I, I think, I'm, I think I'm with you more than you might realize about the danger of us lecturing about our, our sacred rights mm -hmm. and how we're a special class. I mean, look, everybody's a, everybody has the ability to be a member of the press now with Twitter and Facebook and everything else. We need to encourage folks to view themselves as a member of the media mm -hmm. because then they protect their rights at, to be a member of the media, right? Right, does right. That, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think speech rights and the notion of sort of a free press, these, these things are so closely related. Um, in fact, I don't really differentiate between the two things uh, because I'm not looking for government to get into the business of, say, certifying journalists, um, although certain laws um, that have been proposed by certain uh, government officials to offer unique protections to journalists, for example, um, might suggest that there are different classes of people or sort of official sanction for people who are actually allowed to practice journalism. But I don't think that would be a, a, a good thing um, for reasons that you just highlighted. I think Cuomo just did this uh, this week in New York, didn't that's, he? That's precisely he what He proposed I was something yeah. about, what, what was he, what did he propose? Um, it was like make a it a felony? Like, almost like a journalism shield law. So something like the, the laws that are on the books to make it a particularly... Uh, grievous offense yeah. for you to attack a police officer would yep. be similarly bad, a felony yeah. for you to attack a, a journalist. I got the, uh, the actually the Cuomo quote here. It's, mm -hmm. Let's make assaulting the press a felony in New York State. Last, last year saw heinous and deadly attacks against members of the press. Journalists must be protected from the threat of physical harm for just doing their jobs. I'm going to give him a small tip and it's on, on how this stuff works. You know, it's already illegal to <laughs> punch people in the face, right? Well, it's, it's not as if like this is just these people are just getting beaten up all the time and no one's doing anything about it. It's completely absurd. I, it's unfortunately the kind of what falls in a kind of hate crime way mm -hmm. that we want a special class of, of prosecution for the motivation that people have when they're, they're punching somebody in the face. I mean, that's a different debate, but I wanted to ask Brian something because you know, it, it strikes me that, that you know, when, when Fox News started, when, when, actually, you know, in the, in the sort of mid-2000s, when the Robert Greenwalds were doing these sort of out-Fox documentaries, and That's it became this kind of hate object for, for people on the left. And my opinion on Fox News is, is my problem with it is it's just very bad at what it does. It's, it's not good journalism. Yeah, you can find some people here and there that do some interesting things, but it's just, you watch these shows and I just cringe. I can't believe this is the representation of the right on television. But I think what's changed about the criticism 
is not like in the past, it was that silly slogan, you know, uh, we report, you decide, <laughs> and it's just fair and balanced, and it's straight down the middle. And people, of course, objected to that. And they said, oh, it's biased, it's biased. It seems to me that we've slipped, not slipped, I think, I, I actually think it's kind of a positive thing, shifted more towards a British model in the sense that everybody knows in England that you buy the Telegraph, it's a right-wing paper, the Times is sort of center-right, the Guardian's left, you know, it, we know these categories in England. But it's, it seems now that nobody's attacking Fox News anymore for not being, you know, a straight news source. They know it's a right wing thing. They're fine with it. They just object to the stupid chirons <laughs> and the dumb stories and the offensive things that they do. But it does. The, the weird thing, though, is CNN does get it and CNN gets it now you know, we know that MSNBC is is sort of left of center. Fox is right of center. CNN is supposed to be straight down the middle. And now they're in resistance mode and it offends us. I don't know why there's a sort of it seems like there's a sort of special categorization for CNN, but I don't mind this so much. But it seems like people are kind of OK with these outlets being partisan. And it's just that they don't like the chalkboard stuff of Glenn Beck. And now the chalkboard stuff on MSNBC about connections to sort of random Russians. I mean, are we at a place now that that we are accepting, more accepting of partisan media in America? And we don't say, oh, no, no, it has to be unbiased. It has to be down the middle. And you know, it has to be sort of like, I know the New York Times and newspapers, yeah. I think more of their biases in story selection. But, you know, they try to play it down the middle. Television news, less so. And I'm OK well, with Brian, that. Bef and before you answer, I want to be sure to pull something out of here, Moynihan, because it sounded like you were saying that CNN is in resistance mode. That was the quote. Yes. Let's drill down on that. No, 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 no. CNN no, is in resistance I don't I don't say that myself. I just see that in a very and it's a very common yeah, argument. It's a common argument. People don't complain about MSNBC because they know they're left wing right. and they don't complain about Fox. They know they're right wing. They don't say, holy cow, these guys are like, you know, sort of slobbering over Republicans. We get that with Fox. I have seen it quite a bit, though, with CNN that people say, oh, they're in resistance mode now. They used to be straight down the middle and they're not. So anymore. Well, I think two, two CNN is resisting that, yeah. lying. Right. CNN is resist resisting indecency. And that, uh, you know, is is yeah, personally, I'm obviously in favor of that. But that's also different than uh, resisting Trump. Now, I, I, I know yeah. you're making you're, you're saying what is a common argument others make. But yeah, it's not my argument. Yeah. I would I would just make that distinction. Um, what I think is really interesting about CNN in the past two years is there's been this attempt to more explicitly stand up for facts and, and truthful information and decency. And decency is different from truth, right? Like decency is a, you know, not not using sick and racist slurs as, as, as nicknames. It's wishing the president would spell words right, like wanting kind of traditions and decency in the country. And, and I like that CNN stand up for those values, but mostly stand up for, for facts and accuracy. I think what's most important is that in 10 or 20 years, we're still doing this regardless of who's in power. That's mm. the most important thing. If, if we stop doing that, then we fail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been fairly interesting that you see a Chiron or a headline about, you know, Trump says this and there's nothing to back it up. There's no facts to support this. And it's in the Chiron. It's in the headline. Do you suspect? I mean, look, I, we should all acknowledge that he is uniquely horrible on this point. I mean, the guy just makes things up. Yeah, he's un uniquely prolific is probably the phrase I'd but use. <laughs> do, do you suspect that that's going to stay as a habit of CNN, as the New York Times, as NPR, if the next administration is a Kamala Harris administration and she's kind of bullshitting on an issue? I fully expect that there will be some instances of false equivalence where 
the next Democrat president will actually be held uh, to a higher, higher standard. I think we all know that Trump is graded on a curve that uh, any of us would have loved to be graded on in college. Um, he is given breaks that other presidents would never be given. Hmm. And uh, I think any Democrat or, or future Republican president won't be given those breaks. Uh, if you mix up New Orleans and Nashville, um, I think any other president would probably be uh, have a harder time living that down. I think, but but that's just a fun example from this week, uh, or not not fun actually at all. Kind of scary. <laughs> but, you, uh, but but can I say the broader thing about what's changed about television? Yeah. Here's what's changed: the cell phone changed. Uh, I, I, the cell phone came along and changed everything. To me, what we've seen in cable news and television news is a reflection of the fact that all your head all your headlines and all your information is available on your phone at any time, in any way, in any shape and form. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously that happened ten years ago, but it's it took on a, a more important power about five years ago, and that's why headline news is no longer headline news. Uh, that's why CNN is no longer ten stories an hour. To me, the cell phone changed everything, and that's why these channels, in the case of Fox, in the case of MSNBC, have gone more explicitly uh, to their corners. Uh, that's why I think CNN's gone all in on one big story at a time. And uh, and I think that's actually a, a good thing from the perspective of a television consumer, because if your phone is better at the headlines and the breaking news alerts, your TV has to be better at explaining the breaking news and talking about the breaking news and and going more in depth. It's a logical, I think, allocation of resources. And I just wish, to your point about Fox, that people had taken Tucker Carlson seriously a decade ago. He gave such an important speech at CPAC 10 years ago uh, next month, February 29, February 2009. It was, I remember it very well. About how conservative movement. The New York Times. The the conservatives need the New York Times. They need New York Times. Mm -hmm. Accuracy first. Yeah. Why people haven't, why why there hasn't been more of of an attempt to to live up to that speech, I'll never understand because uh, the country would be better off if there were more news outlets with a conservative or libertarian perspective, but there were news outlets first, not news like substances, not things that taste like news that are actually bad for you, um, but actually news. And it's it's disappointing that that there aren't more of those. I wanted to follow up on something you said a moment ago about sort of decency and truth and relatedly the, the notion that Trump is graded on a curve. I mean, specifically with decency, truth, and you gave this specific example of racism, which is something that has come up a great deal um, throughout the Trump administration and before. Um, I mean, we're talking a lot about subjective judgments here and a determination about when a statement is racially charged or in fact racist is in fact a subjective statement. And one thing that I've noticed in particular amongst the mainstream press, and certainly when I watch CNN and definitely when I've watched your program is oftentimes everyone is in broad agreement about sort of this notion that, well, what the president said is racist and the president is always using racially charged language. Um, and it's so it's so regular uh, rejoinder that it is it becomes this received wisdom that is unchallenged that therefore goes out and actually takes other things that might be regarded as innocuous in some contexts and turns them into this just sort of concatenized chain of obvious like racism. Here's example number one. And it's, yeah, it's self-evident. It's explicit. It's undeniably racist. And that that sort of categorical imperative, which I know is not something I just invented, but you, let me use it in this context, folks. I worry about that becoming sort of a, a, an ethos of an institution. And I worry about it being the sort of thing where anyone who isn't who isn't on board with the particular categorizations we have is essentially part of the other side. It's like this dichotomy where everyone who is 
anti-Trump, or at least is for decency, knows that those things are racist and wants to talk about them ad nauseum. Um, and everyone who is for Trump finds ways to excuse it. I, I, for one, like end up being one of those unusual people who am often vehemently critical of the president in various contexts. But I worry about spurious allegations and spurious charges of racism and a minimum charges of racism that are highly debatable and are the sort of thing that are going to raise the heckles of people who support the president who support, for example, building a wall the same way Barack Obama wanted to build a fence or Bill Clinton before him or George W. Bush before him, but not in that order. You know what I mean? Um, like, I, I worry about the the way that we've sort of lurched in that direction. And I worry about the degree to which our, our interest in preserving sort of these standards of, of rightness and goodness and, and respectability in our politics um, has actually driven us to some excesses in that area. Was NBC right to send out that memo the other day saying, do not call Steve King's remarks to the New York Times racist? Because then they reversed within like three hours under pressure from the Twitter elites. Yeah, I'd say (laughs) say it's actually a little more complicated. I mean, the Steve King, the Steve King circumstance is one where if there's an M-dash instead of a comma after he says white nationalist and white supremacist, he is not equating three things. He is contrasting two things with a different thing. That was my first thought when I saw that quote appear in the New York Times. And if that's the case, one, I think it's an indictment of most of the media industry and most of the political class who didn't bother to ask what you meant. And it's certainly an indictment of whoever's in the room asking Steve King a question like that and isn't curious enough to say, well, excuse me, what do you mean by that? Explain that. Because a lot of people are going to hear that and that's not going to that's not going to come across to them as just sort of a benign comment. I think there's something about Steve King, I think I find to be awful on a number of different levels. I think he has plenty of bad ideas that make him unacceptable to me. I would start with the fact that he is explicitly homophobic. Um, But if we're going to excommunicate him from Congress, I might not want to do it on what I find to be, frankly, completely unpersuasive allegation. Um, But no one seems interested in adjudicating this at all. And I think it has something to do with our the the categorical imperative. That's racist. We have to get away from it as quickly as possible. We have to make certain that we condemn it as loudly as possible. In fact, even Steve King is apparently going to vote for (laughs) for the 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 resolution that is decrying him as awful and monstrous. (laughs) Well, I mean, if I just real quick, like, you know, we. I, I've been on the Steve King beat for a while and yeah. I've generally found him unfit for Congress for a whole lot of reasons. And I will say he's racist and homophobic. I don't mean, well, but, I get all the categories. The New York, it's the, if it wasn't the New York Times, if, uh-huh. he, if these comments weren't published in the New York Times, mm. I don't feel like the uh, the GOP would have said, OK, this is the time. This is the time to galvanize and this is the time to huh. say, hey, we're we're going to you know close ranks and we're going to you know make sure that everyone knows he's not with us. If it was a, if it was, a you know, a is that frustrating? Bank, for, for who? For me? For any other reporter who's covered Steve King. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, you know, I mean, it's he's been kind of like a dirty little secret for a real long time. Like he's been there for a while. He's been somebody who's uh, who uh, prominent Republican presidential candidates have sought his endorsement because he's in Iowa. Including you know? President Trump. Sure. I mean, um, yeah, uh, but but this, he endorsed Cruz, though, I believe. But this strikes yeah. me as a different point. I mean, I think we're having the conversation about whether or not Steve King is racist. And but, the uh, point uh, that I was trying to draw out is from the particular allegation, yes. precipitating event yes. that has led to this particular excommunication. Yes. And I said it's because of the times. It's Maybe it's because of the times. But in either case, the question is, is it 
what everyone seems to be want to say but it perhaps, is, and I'm saying that it isn't obvious. Perhaps because it but we was, behave as if it is. If it wasn't obvious, perhaps that's why it took several days for the national media to really take this seriously. Right? Media Matters from the left called out CNN and MSNBC and Fox for not going wall to wall with this right away, mm-hmm. compared to the MF quote from from the Dem. Perhaps the newsrooms weren't quite sure what to make of it, and that's lost now because now it's become a, a much a bigger story nationally. Inertia. But sure. there were several days of kind of sl- um, relatively restrained coverage, and I wonder if that was because folks didn't weren't sure how seriously to take it. I, I would go back to the Dave Shithole as an example of this. We need newsrooms to have lots of different mm. perspectives. Uh, in part because of days like shithole. Mm-hmm. Uh, CNN, the story breaks in the afternoon. Every anchor that night went a little further with a different perspective. Mm. Like Anderson Cooper said it was a racist comment. I think Chris Cuomo, uh, actually, I don't think his show is, Cuomo show wasn't on yet. Aaron Burnett called it a racist comment. Anderson called it racist. Uh, history of racist comments. Don Lemon said the president is racist. And, you know, to me, that is the different, to, to me, that is a um, a, a positive about cable news and about CNN, different anchors, different different parts of the newsroom with different points of view about what happened and and, and what to say about Trump. Uh, I maybe you would say say that's not a positive because all of them reached the same conclusion about the racist nature of the comment, but they all came out on their own programs with different points of view, whether to say the word, mm-hmm. how to characterize the word. Um, to me, that's a positive, and we need newsrooms to have that variety. Well, I'd, I'd step away from the particular conclusion and just say it's the process. Everyone is reaching a conclusion. These are opinions. These aren't facts. This isn't about truth at this point. This is about our perspective on the matter. And we we feel this way. We feel it strongly. We feel it perhaps uniformly. And that, that is meaningfully different and subjective in a way that a lot of our talk about the truth mm. and about journalism um, well, doesn't necessarily reflect or necessarily represent in most people's minds. And I wonder if the the low pres- opinion of journalism that people have had in this country for a long time and sort of declining um, doesn't have something to do with expectations being in one place for a sort of truth and objectivity, both on the part of the journalists stating over and over again, this is what we do. And on the part of the readers, the consumers who say, this yeah. is what we want. And it's the expectation on everyone's part, and no one is actually getting it. Well, well, first, I would I would dispute the premise that, that people don't like journalists and hate the media. No, I'm not saying that. I, I know that, that the opinions on on journalism have declined in a lot of polling. I, I know that the polling shows it at a relative low, but you know, to me, everybody consumes media and everyone trusts some form of media. It's just that they don't trust the same form of media. And so Mm -hmm. as a result, if I ask you, do you trust the media? You're going to say no. But if I ask you, do you trust WABC here in New York City? You're going to say yes. And I I would just point that out to say as well, journalists, you know, a lot of debate about journalism is about political journalism, about Trump. But my wife's a traffic reporter. People trust her traffic reports. People trust the weather report most of the time, unless it's completely wrong. And in that case, it's mostly the fault of the weather for changing, right? Yeah. I mean, my point <laughs> is people need information. They want information. They seek out information. And they expect us to be an advocate for them as an audience. And that's an interesting way to talk about journalism, right? We should advocate for the audience. Well, if we should advocate for the audience, then we should say the shutdown is a fucking disgrace, right? Shutdown is embarrassing. And a lot of our anchors have said it's embarrassing or it's it's shameful. Tapper said the other day it's shameful that Coast Guard folks aren't getting their paychecks. That's advocating for the Coast Guard. That's advocating for the audience. Uh, I like that. I think we want more of that in journalism. However, 
that does turn off mostly older consumers who will say in polls, just tell me the tracks, just tell me the facts. I find that most younger consumers want more than that. And I wonder if there's just, there's some different, there's some different buckets here. There's different, different wants from different audiences that are at play here. Um, but what you're also describing is this splintering of an audience, the splintering of a country into mm -hmm. pro and anti mm -hmm. or into, you know, and that is a bigger problem, frankly, than, you know, leak investigations right now are, you know, leak investigations make it much worse. But right now, our fundamental problem is these two Americas, right? Mm -hmm. These two realities. And in one reality, Trump is a racist. And in this other reality, Trump's a, a good guy who's just trying really hard and the media is really mean to him. And and that how we put that back together, I think, is a much bigger story than um, than a, than a lot of the journalism mistakes that I cover every day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's so much more foundational. Do you think under in the age of Trump, like, you know, it's 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 always a, a been a thing where if uh, a reporter or a publication or a news outlet makes a mistake and issues a correction, it's considered, OK, this is kind of self-policing. It's a good now, thing. Yeah. But yeah. now but now it's, you know, not not by everybody, but it's certainly amplified. It seems to be in the last couple of years that any mistake must have been deliberate. And it's only because of the, uh, you know, the, the the outpouring of shame that causes people to correct like they wouldn't have corrected it before. Yeah, it's it's. Corrections are wielded like a weapon mm -hmm. as as proof of uh, mendacity uh, when, when in fact it is it is truly is proof of just, you know, self-healing, self-correcting, self-policing. Um, and and I, I've heard Ben Smith, who was recently here, make the argument that more corrections, uh, it's a good thing. It shows mm -hmm. that the Internet is improving this process and making errors more obvious and, and more checkable and quicker and quicker and much quicker. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I made a mistake in my newsletter last week involving the Washington Post and, and Marty Barron, the editor of the Post, emailed me. And that feeling of raw embarrassment, it took me back to my days of the New York Times where I would get called into my editor's office for making a mistake. That feeling stays with you. Mm -hmm. I, I wish I could explain it to the public. Like that feeling of making a mistake, even a typo, it, it stays with you. you. You don't ever want to do it again. That is a great thing for the profession. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the, these questions are wielded by partisans as daggers, as weapons. It's almost like on the internet, we, we use links as, as knives or as, as swords. People mm -hmm. wield links back and forth with their swords. Like, to try to slice each other up into pieces. And I'm really convinced that's not reality. Yeah. It's not really, th those fights are not real life. And some of those people aren't even real people. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and the more that I, Try to step back from that, the better off I am. My first point is that uh, Steve King is a racist. Uh, <laughs> and if you, did, if you didn't get, know that, uh, you should check out his Twitter feed because it's pretty racist. Um, <laughs> and he hangs out with like Victor Orban. And by the way, when I was interviewing, uh -huh. nobody paid attention to this at the time. I was, I interviewed um, the head of the FPO in Austria during their presidential election, which is the uh, uh, far right uh, party that was founded by by former SS members. Uh, and they were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we go to D.C. sometimes. And uh, <laughs> you know, we hang out with Steve King. And I was like, wait, Steve King? Is that and I was like, it was in German. And I was like trying to say navigate the German. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah Steve King, that makes sense. So that's the first point. Steve King's a racist. Uh, the second thing I'll say is that, you know, I do. There's been I, I love the fact that, you know, Twitter is both. The worst thing for and journalism the and the best and the thing best. is that, you know, I joined together with a bunch of former colleagues and current colleagues to fact check um, some stuff in Jill Abramson's forthcoming book, um, which is about a, a quarter of it, a third of it's about Vice. And, um, you know, one of the big mistakes was changed. 
And yep. the hardbound copies of that book have already gone out, and they've gone out three, four, or five days later with that change. And the reason that change happened is because someone sent me a galley. I took a photo of something in the galley and sent it to the person who was identified as transgender when they're not transgender. Um, and she was quite upset by that, and it was corrected fairly quickly. Um, there's a, a lot of stuff in that book that hasn't been corrected. But no, I do like this idea. Like you cannot, I mean, think about how Vietnam would have been reported, you know, with Twitter. I mean, we, there are books that, about mm -hmm. the reporting on the Tet Offensive, just entire books just about the Tet Offensive, which at the time looked like a major loss for the American military. And it was actually uh, a military victory. It was a sort of psychological uh, defeat. But I think of all these times and, you know, the Brent Bozells of the world. I mean, Brent Bozells Sr., the, 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 not the red beards pirate guy today, but his father wrote a book along with William F. Buckley defending Joseph McCarthy against media attacks. And it's kind of funny to look at that book now because there are some actually fair points in the book, but you know, it, overall it's wrong, but I, you know, and then his son creates MRC, which barely exists today, but in the 1980s used to release these, these paperback books of, uh, what was it? That that's the news that wasn't or something like that. And it would just be compendiums uh, this compendium of people, uh, saying things about the Sandinistas and Reagan and all this stuff. And I remember the, the great example of this in Vietnam, there was a, there was a, um, documentary called the Vietnam, the television war, which PBS uh, came out with in the 1980s. And there was a guy that some people might remember named Reed Irvine, who, cr who created something called accuracy in media, which was kind of a right wing uh, media watchdog. And they pressured at the time PBS to playing a, a documentary that they created, which was narrated and introduced by Charlton Heston, that gave mm. a different perspective on the Vietnam War. And that was the result of a very, very long, <laughs> expensive and noisy campaign. And I think of the difference now of just having Jill Everson's publisher change something in a nanosecond right. and it making it into the hardbound copy is that, you know, I, I think we spent a lot of time talking about Twitter mobs and how toxic and noxious the whole thing is, which I agree with. I mean, I've, uh, I think a lot of people have pointed this out, people that I know and people that listen to the show is that I don't tweet very much anymore because I don't I like the that. whole thing. But when I do tweet, it's something about, you know, Hey, this is wrong in the book, Jill. And, uh, there'll be a lot more of that coming, but yeah, I just, I, I think it's, a lot of positive things about Twitter that we take our eye off the ball because of people being bullied and, and, and harassed on Twitter. So I think there's a, there's an interesting related point there. And, and first of all, in my defense, the, the challenge here is not whether or not Steve King is racist. The point I'm making <laughs> is a, a narrow point about whether or not we care if the particular charges are true or false. And the weight of the evidence, so far as I'm concerned, in many instances suggests that we don't care. And that bothers me not because of Steve King in particular, but for the benefit of the weatherman who happens to say by mistake, it seems quite obvious at a minimum, yeah. it, it could be either or. But I don't even know how you could possibly imagine that he actually meant to say Martin Luther Kuhn. There isn't much 
thought about it. There's just this panic and the man is tossed out on his head. Um, you fight the edge cases because it matters in some other cases um, where, where perhaps the person um, under interrogation is more honorable. I mean, um, you're we, describing groupthink, right? Groupthink is the enemy of good journalism. But, 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 Camille, Camille, one thing quickly is that is that if the weatherman had previously tweeted about how uh, horrible mixing cultures are, you know, <laughs> mixing cultures is terrible in America, diversity is not our strength. If that weatherman had said that, I'd be like, yeah, he probably meant it. I understand, <laughs> I probably, understand the point you're making. I'm not trying to, to expand this further. I even Even, however, even the weight of the evidence standard it doesn't matter for individual charges this it's called marley's razor i've cited it before on this podcast just because i shot the sheriff doesn't mean i shot the deputy but i want to i want to turn the page quickly to page one it's a documentary that ah, i watched yes. recently which Ron, i've never heard you talk about um actually but you are featured prominently in yes. this, this documentary you're a little younger about nine years old i think at the time <laughs> working at the new york times i had more hair you're basically like a co-leader <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But but one of the the major themes of this really good, I think, time capsule of, of a particular time in American media. But one of the major themes is sort of what will the future of media be? And at the time, to put this in the context for folks, the New York Times, like many other publications, is facing a tremendous amount of financial pressure. They're having to do layoffs and everyone is uncertain about what the future of media will look like, whether or not sort of the Facebooks and all these other things are are in, in these aggregator websites, if people still remember when those were the principal concern, mm -hmm. we're going to put institutions like the New York Times to say nothing of these smaller regional and local publications completely out of business. If they would destroy their business model, here you are some years later, and we just talked about Twitter and you even said, I think Twitter is a good thing. Um, what what do you make of the sort of shape of the media landscape now and the future of media? Are you are you optimistic, perhaps? Because at the time, I think everyone was uh, was pretty, uh, pretty bent out of shape. It was a scary time at The New York Times. You know, mm -hmm. I was a, a new reporter there. The director, Andrew Rossi, was um, amazingly uh, allowed in with cameras uh, to follow us around, uh, following around David Carr and following around the other, other reporters in the media desk. This was a time when I was, uh, you know, uh, kind of becoming a mentee of David without really knowing it. And so the film captures our relationship. And it was a stressful time because we kept getting these packets, packets in the mail inviting us to quit our jobs. You know, the Times is going through round after round of buyouts, something that still happens occasionally there and at other places. But it was especially intense at this time because it felt like the entire future of the paper was on the line. Uh, the idea of uh, digital subscriptions was still so new and so novel and, uh, and, and so untested that it was a very stressful time at the paper. But I think um, I remember the, the first time subscriptions were talked about, online subscriptions were talked about, mm -hmm. feeling like um, this is going to change us profoundly uh -huh. because we're going to be writing for our subscribers. You know, we're, we're going to know them so much more deeply and we're going to want to keep them. Yeah. And, and that's where the Times is now. Right. Uh, it knows how to gain subscribers. It knows how to keep growing that base. And it knows how to write what those subscribers really want. Um, and I think in many ways, it's a great change 
I understand there's concern about it as well, though. Jill Abramson expresses a concern in her in her book uh, that's coming out soon uh, about the Times writing so many stories about Trump to to please subscribers. I, I don't. She also, I, she I also don't buy that. She also, that's point, she, she also took issue with editorializing in the headlines, which is something yeah, that I, I don't, don't think is don't, unique to the Trump era. I, I don't know how. How can you avoid doing that? Yeah. I, th I think it's kind of a necessary part of the job. There particularly are, during heated times, I sure. mean, during, during the run up to the Iraq wars, a lot of editorializing in the headlines. Yeah, I, she says the paper's anti-Trump, and I think that's really hurtful to her former colleagues. Um, it's like saying the paper's anti-crime. Mm. I mean, if there's a lot of crimes going on, you've got to cover the crime. Mm. Uh, I think that's true if it's a Democrat or a Republican. It doesn't matter. Um, cover the crime. And that's what the Times is doing. That's what other outlets, outlets are doing. Uh, I know that'll be taken out of context. That's okay. <laughs> At least it won't be by us. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, the, the, uh, the, the bigger point, I think, about the New York Times is that they have found this path, and, and hopefully others will too. Uh, I would be willing to pay a little more than I pay now for subscriptions to certain news outlets. Me too, probably. But, but I also know that I hit a lot of paywalls and I don't pay yet. Sure. So there's that friction that I still experience. There are still those choices I'm making about whether to pay and when not to pay. And that's, a to, to me, a, a big part of my beat now is that what is that future? Who, what are you going to pay for? What are you not going to pay for? Mm -hmm. How can we make it super easy to pay? Because aren't we in the situation now where we have the opportunity to be better informed than ever before as voters, as citizens, as consumers of whatever our hobbies are? Mm -hmm. We also have the ability to be more ignorant than ever before. We, mm. It's the extremes. There are these extremes. I mean, mm. I think about my brothers who are mm. a little younger than me. They are they are enabled, thanks to their phones, to know more than anything ever before in the history of, of, of civilization. Um, and uh, but that's on them. Like the pressure is on them more than it was 10 or 20 years ago to go out and find the information and find out if it's accurate and figure out if it's reliable. Like we, we expect so much more out of the audience sort of now um, mm. because you have to go out and find a lot of it. You have to you have to go out and seek the best quality information. I, I got otherwise, if you're scrolling through Facebook, you're going to see a lot of the other kind. Well, also, yeah. there's, there's, you know, there's a big thing about, you know, rejecting what is known as mainstream media, which is a phrase I kind of hate. But um, yeah, the idea it's that it has its purpose. Sure. But in, in, the, in the sense that, you know, anything that is mainstream media is inherently corrupted because they're the gatekeepers and they're subscribing to the conventional wisdom. And there's a lot of different uh, audiences coalescing around the Internet that are just uh, that basically define themselves in opposition to that. Right. Right. Uh, or what they think is elite media. Mm -hmm. uh, what Bernie would call on the trail, corporate media. Mm -hmm. It's like, Bernie, I got a hole in my shoe. You know? <laughs> but then again, I'm also not claiming uh, not to be uh, well off. Uh, sure. I live in New York City. I mean, you know, I, I think it's important for, for folks in newsrooms to be very aware of what they're bringing to that table. But, but you mentioned you mentioned Maryland earlier. I'm glad I went to a state school, you know, because I know a lot of my colleagues went to fancier schools. Mm -hmm. Being able to to know that and be able to bring different talents like that, bringing different backgrounds is super valuable. And we need to fight against the homogeneity that sometimes can happen in newsrooms. Anyway, sorry for the tangent. No, no, I think, no, no, no. No, I think that's it's a, a rare, super great point. Rare, rare. I, I mean, the, the thing that I'm, I'm wondering about, two things that you said, the first being this, uh, this notion of this being, having the opportunity to be more ignorant than ever before. Is that too harsh? Uh, well... Uh, what I wonder about is just romanticizing the past a little bit. <laughs> well, because there's a sense there's a sense in which I mean, there's always been a, a deficit of understanding when it comes to voters and sort of sophisticated, challenging, complicated uh, policy issues. And 
one of the one of the but isn't it easier that, to lock yourself in a prison of your own making now like when the apollo missions happened 50 years mm-hmm. ago this year mm-hmm. you could watch them on several different channels but you didn't have the option of watching a youtube channel to tell you it was a hoax well, it doesn't mean hoax stuff didn't spread it did it yeah, spread still, newsletters it. yeah but it was a it's a lot easier now to lock yourself in a prison of, of your own making this echo chamber where you you want to be there it's so much easier now to do that 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 I think that may be true. Absolutely. I mean, I think with the JFK assassination, though, is a, a good example from sort of the time period where plenty of Americans rejected the official narrative, despite the fact that there were sanctioned official right. only the major networks who could talk about this and almost no one else could. Right. I mean, we, we I mean, Oswald handing out leaflets on the on the street corner. Yeah. You know, it's I can't, can't, by the way, keep in mind that the first it's kind of relevant now, I guess. But the first uh, JFK uh, conspiracy book published in the United States was published by a publisher in New York City. that was a KGB front. Yeah. So <laughs> wow, who, who saw that. that this opportunity wow. to sow some discord where we're um, in uh, the Lubyanka in, in, in Moscow. And it's not often huh. pointed out, by the way. It's in Christopher Andrew, Andrews and I think in Vasily Matrokin's book about the KGB. But it's fascinating. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I will send along. I think I've tweeted about it in the past. I'll send along the relevant details. I'll, I'll retweet the old stuff. So one of the things that I saw earlier this week was um, an assertion that maybe Facebook and Google should take a bunch of their money and set it aside in some sort of trust to fund local newspapers in particular sort of on into the future in perpetuity. Um, uh, and a lot of folks seem to think this was a good idea. And they're going 1% in that direction, right? Right. They, They've each given like $3 million over three years. 300 million. Various, sorry, right? yes. Yeah. <laughs> three, 300 million. Yeah, a little bit Over different. three years, companies that make $5, $10 billion of profit a quarter. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I said to Campbell Brown, one of their vice presidents, mm-hmm. aren't Facebook, you just yeah. throwing crumbs at us? You, you did all this damage and now you're just turning around and throwing scraps. And of course, her answer is we are not going to uninvent the Internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> True. That's sure. correct. I mean, that's a that's a true answer. Um, but you you do have to wonder if there's a, a more sustainable approach than just it's great. Three years of money for various projects to try to pre- throw a lot of seeds out there and see what grows. You do wonder what is a what's a longer term approach? Well, uh, I wonder about the models that might arise that we haven't even begun to imagine yet. Um, the the models for both monetizing, for perhaps bundling different, um, uh, for bundling different media properties. Oh, I, I have the solution. Oh, do you? Yeah. What is it? Simple. I don't know. Can I say this now that I work for AT and T? I used to think before I worked for the phone company that uh, everybody's got a cell phone. Everybody's got to have wireless service. So uh-huh. if you're gonna if you're gonna be around. A um, couple bucks a month for some sort of news. Uh, surcharge. God only knows how many surcharges there already are on our bills. Uh-huh. Uh, the hard part, of course, is how do you divvy that money up? <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, so you're saying it would be like a, I'm, a universal service tax. But I'm, you know, I'm, and look, I understand that then, then, then we're going down the road of a tax and then we're going down the road of a PBS and an NPR conversation. Uh-huh. A lot of people don't want to think about more public support for media. But I guess what I'm saying is there's these tech giants that know so much about us and already have billing relationships with all of us. And there has to be a way, has to be some way to connect that to paying for news. Maybe it's not AT&T and Verizon, maybe it's Facebook and Google, but I wish we could do more with the companies that I already have that billing relationship with, rather than me set up the 
28th account on wired.com in order to pay for wired. Yeah. That is a, that is not a model that is a, a, a preferable to yeah, me. I don't know how many different subscriptions right. I have at this point. Oh. Last week, Moynihan, you were mentioning you have like Hulu, Netflix, and a hundred thousand. Yeah. Spotify and these other things. You know, I've got my Nest yeah, subscription. Yeah, I, I have, for my I have ones that are going out of business. Filmstruck is now oh, gone. Yeah. I have I, so I many subscriptions that. and I pay. But can you imagine? I mean, I recall 10 years ago, everybody predicting. I mean, if Brian had a show on CNN in 2007, he would have a chorus of people on his panel saying, nobody will ever pay for news online. Uh-huh. They just it's won't true. do it. I remember all of those conversations. And I have to say that that, you know, it's, you know, I think Brian's right. It's that this, there's something has to give here has to be and you, know, you can't save uh, local newspapers, et cetera, but the times has done quite well. And I think that, you know, the, the Amazon coming in and doing amazing things uh, with the Washington post and actually investing in journalists themselves and investing in the technology of the website, et cetera. Um, and by the way, if you have an Amazon prime subscri- subscription, you get six months of the uh, Washington, Washington post, post for free. Yeah. And it's it's a pretty great deal. And I don't think a lot of people know about that. They're not great at promoting that. But I'm kind of impressed that we've gone in the direction of actually paying for things because everybody I know also pays for Spotify. Whereas, you know, 15 years ago, everybody I know had LimeWire and Napster and was loading their computer up with MP3s that they Wait, just stole online. Stole music? <laughs> oh my now, God. Now I had hard in the drives. Air. Did you see the billboard story this week about how the number one album in the country only sold like 800 digital copies? It's yeah, insane. And, and, the, yeah, and the billboard chart. It was chart, all streams. Yeah, the billboard yeah. chart is based on, I think, 50 streams equals one sale. It doesn't make Which is sense. not even close. It doesn't all make any yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, 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 you know, 10 years ago, uh, you know, we're celebrating, among other things, the 10-year, uh, 10 or 15, I think it's 10-year anniversary of Netflix going into streaming. Hmm. And Blockbuster was viewed as a big threat. Blockbuster was viewed as a big threat 10 years ago to Netflix. And that just reminds me that nobody knows nothing. Like, yeah. Nobody knows anything. I have no idea where Netflix will be in 10 yeah, years. Yeah. I can't even fathom where it'll be in 10 years if if it only started streaming 10 years ago. You, you know what else happened this week? 10-year anniversary of the Miracle on the Hudson. Is that and that right? guy yeah, that yeah, tweets the picture, yep. right? To me, that's the anniversary of Twitter mm. because huh. that was the first citizen journalism moment on Twitter where the guy tweets the picture of the plane in the Hudson. You know, everybody like me who heard about it secondhand, I was in the newsroom at the Times, turn on the TV, turn on the TV. By the time you turn on the TV, the plane had been evacuated and you figured everybody had drowned. Yeah. But then you go on Twitter, you see this guy took a picture on the ferry. Everybody's sitting on the wings. You realize everybody survived. And it was the first kind of brilliant moment where Twitter actually had a value. So I, I was actually living <laughs> near the Hudson River. Uh, it was a freezing cold day. I, I actually went and caught, snapped a picture oh, of wow. it while, uh, while the plane was being. While it was it, floating toward. It had been evacuated. Battery Park City. Yeah, but it was floating. It was floating down. You could, you could clearly see the, the yeah. tail. Uh, and I posted my picture to MySpace. My, which, 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 you still had MySpace. Yes, because I, I was a latecomer to Facebook. But at the, even, <laughs> even then, like in the 2008, 2009, there were articles about, can anything stop MySpace? And Rupert Murdoch by, by MySpace. <laughs> Remember that. It, it was, it was all you're it was missing that. By the way, I oh, just so you know that you 10 years ago were following Anthony Fisher's Friendster. You got all the great hot tips. But by the way, remember Tom Freston, uh, whom yeah. I, I, I know a bit and I think is a very, very 
uh, talented guy and basically created MTV in so many ways. Yeah. He was fired from Viacom. For what reason? For losing the bidding for MySpace to Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> That's right. He was fired. He saved you. And it was a great it was a great advantage to us at Vice because he had, you know, a golden parachute yeah. and he came out and he came invested a lot of stuff in Vice. And he was yeah. a, he was a very early investor because he was fired because he didn't get MySpace. <laughs> well, there's there's so something you never know, as Brian said. Yeah, there's Nobody something knows. important about us reminding ourselves of just how how quickly things can change one and how little we know that will actually give us the ability to predict how things will turn out. But it it reminds me of something else. I mean, it and it's what is what is the major the overarching narrative that is perhaps the most important one of, of the current moment, perhaps, you know, of the current administration, of the current epoch. I, I don't know how one wants to measure it, but I know when I think about sort of the, the Trump era and what is of most interest to me, generally speaking, what I'm trying to track are less the things that are, quote, sort of not normal um, and more the things that, well, you know what, this is this is more or less the status quo. And this is there is always the capacity for these kinds of abuses to take place. Hmm. And it's imperative that we're building a, a system, that we have a system that can take sort of these routine shocks. So when I hear people talk right. about sort of Facebook and Google and taking the money from them and setting up some sort of public trust so there can be a large government-run social media platform, I think to myself, oh, so what you want to do is give all of this power to the government so that the next time you have another Donald Trump, they can be in charge of all of those things. That's just a bizarre strategy to me. And it's it's learning the wrong lesson from someone who perhaps illustrates in the most visceral way the way in which power can be abused. Maybe when Barack Obama's in office, you overlook the fact that he actually prosecutes journalists rather than just the rhetorical assault on journalists. They're on trial. And not on trial for a little while. They are fighting the Justice Department of the United States for perhaps seven years. I mean, talk about chilling effect on speech. That's remarkable. Um, that isn't currently happening under the current regime. It could happen because all of the same laws are still on the books. But sort of future-proofing ourselves in a way, guarding against things that we can actually guard against and at least being aware of some of those uh, dangers um, seems terribly important to me. Well, it's kind of like to keep it in the media realm, the Broadcasting Board of Governors is the old name for uh, the U.S.'s uh, public media efforts in other countries, you know, mm. Voice of America, et cetera, uh, this big pot of money that gets spent to produce media uh, around the world mm. by the U.S. government. And uh, among liberals and, and Trump critics, there's been a lot of concern about Trump turning it and making it very Trumpy. Uh, and there's been a couple weird incidents, weird moments, not a lot, but a few weird things. The folks that have that fear need to channel it and remember that feeling mm -hmm. uh, two or four or six or eight years from now. Yeah. You know, and, and remember that concern that they had then uh, so that uh, when a Democratic president comes to power and they want to expand uh, public media, they remember that fear. Yeah. Can you yeah. can you point to one or two of the weird examples? Wasn't there something recently with Soros where uh, one of the uh, it maybe it was Radio Marti was it was I, I'm I'm not it wasn't it was one of these other uh, outlets of the um, 
government-funded U.S. media uh, was was villainizing, demonizing Soros. It seemed out of place, seemed odd, seemed kind of Trumpy, and uh, there was, uh, I think, an internal um, sanction uh, on the journalists who had who had done that. Uh, which actually, again, yeah, is yeah. another example of self-healing. Yeah, you were right. It was uh, it was radio and television Marty. Oh, there you go. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was always good at Jeopardy. <laughs> it, 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 uh, uh, wow. It uh, apparently described George Soros as quote a non-practicing. Jew of flexible morals and a left-wing billionaire of Hungarian Jewish origin. Now, the latter part is factual, but it's an interesting thing to note. To note. Yeah. Right. So I've got to ask you one thing, because I want to let you go soon, because you do have to work on your newsletter. <laughs> but if Matt Welch knew that you were in the room and I didn't ask you about this, he would assault me and punch me in the head. And you knew that it was possible that you could be asked this. And you came in. Oh, of course, when I came in, I was disappointed it. that Matt wasn't here. I never you mentioned it before Brian, I even asked. So yeah. this isn't a gotcha question. I was disappointed Matt yeah. wasn't here because Matt's been writing about CNN hiring John Kasich. Right. Potential. And he's not thrilled. Presidential candidate, John <laughs> Kasich. <laughs> Mild-mannered Brian Stelter came in here guns blazing. This is something that you, <laughs> know about. You, you know something about because in, in previous eras, um, other networks yes. have hired potential presidential candidates, and you've written about this. So, yes. what do you what do you make of your new colleague John Kasich joining the ranks of CNN um, and uh, being there just to you know call balls and strikes? And that's what he says he's like going to he do. What that's do what think? he says he's going to do. Uh, you, you know, take a step way back first. I was talking about. Um, uh, how TV news has changed because of phones mm -hmm. and how as a result, these channels are are different. They have to be different. They have to be more like rolling talk shows. And to have a rolling talk show about the news, well, obviously you need news coverage, you need reporters, but then you also need a lot of really good talkers. And so it is incredible the number of analysts that CNN and MSNBC and, and to some extent Fox have hired in the past few years. It's really been between CNN and MSNBC. CNN has hired so many commentators and analysts. A lot of them are reporters from newspapers, and then a lot of them are are, are political uh, strategists and, and former uh, lawmakers and, and things like that. Uh, and clearly, in the case of Kasich, it was MSNBC versus CNN uh, to see who was going to hire him. It's interesting now with Jeff Flake. Where will Flake go? That's the other question mark out there. There was a report that he was talking to CBS, hmm. so that was kind of interesting. Because Flake, Kasich, they're two of the names that come up in 2020 about these theoretical, uh, could, could someone challenge Trump? Now, the, the concern with Kasich uh, that's been expressed by Matt and others is that when a, a news channel, when a, a, a network employs one of these uh, um, former politicians, potentially future politicians, uh, that it's unfair, it gives an unfair edge to this particular individual uh, that is perhaps unethical. Uh, that's been the argument. You know, when I've written about this in the past, about Newt Gingrich and others, this was mostly an issue at Fox. Uh, it's also been an issue at MSNBC in the past, uh, where someone is flirting with a run for office. And the line they've usually drawn of the other networks, which I believe CNN would draw, although I don't know, I don't speak for CNN as a spokesperson, um, is that if a person takes a, what's the term, a legal step toward running, mm -hmm. that they have to leave, that they okay. have to sever ties. Uh, yeah, if they form a pack. You know, they... Newt Gingrich, you know, out of Fox as soon as he had an exploratory committee or something like that. And I think that's the same situation with, with CNN and Kasich. I would be shocked if it wasn't. Uh, I haven't asked. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think Kasich's going to run for president. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a moot point. I don't know. Is, 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 am I wrong? Is Kasich... Is Kasich really going to run for president? Well, he's raising funds. Is there, what, what is, is there an environment where Kasich 2020 is real? 
mean, could be, could challenge in the primaries. I, mm. I'm, I'm not the horse race politics guy. I also <laughs> don't know that I, I take particular issue with this. Um, and it's, it's probably because of the, the same sort of insight that Moynihan was highlighting earlier. It, it doesn't so much bother me if it feels as though a particular network has a dog in the fight. I expect that people do have dogs in the fight. Um, and the determination that I'm always making is, is this particular story that's being covered credible? Is the thing that this person is saying accurate? And what other, what other context can I go out and find to help me better understand this story? The expectation that that the truth, that the, the things you need to know will just sort of be delivered to you like manna from heaven by these <laughs> journalists, I think is a dangerous fiction. Mm. Um, and it's a bad idea for people to labor under that belief. We live in a better world, and I think we get better journalism when the citizenry is dutifully and appropriately, not cynical, but skeptical um, about the things that they're reading, it makes you impervious to ridiculous, absurd fake news. <laughs> right. And it forces journalists to do their jobs better. Right. Um, which is, I think, right. precisely where we want to be. Um, in which case, I, I worry a lot less about sort of the president's um, fake news or very fake news um, onslaught and, and worry a lot more um, about us sort of choosing sides, as you alluded to earlier. I, I just want to point out something that it seems rather obvious and nobody has pointed out. But if CNN put John Kasich on the air 24 hours a day, like a Hugo Chavez Cadena, <laughs> he would not win the nomination of, of the Republican Party in 2020. He might be a lovely guy. He's Kasich. not electrifying in that way. It's not giving him a leg up. Matt Welch, you should be ashamed of yourself. I wish, wish you were here to defend yourself. But that's it. That's a foolish point, Matt. You know, <laughs> but Matt also wrote but, but something good think... about CNN today as well. Oh, so what, 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 I, I, I didn't see that. that. Hey, look, every, <laughs> every, I think every president from here on out is going to be a TV star. I'm not saying I they want are. that. Yeah. I'm not saying I want that. I think you're I'm right. Saying it, I'm saying that's the way the world works. So Barack Obama was a TV star. Um, undoubtedly. And Donald Trump, in a different way, was a TV star. Um, I'm glad there's been a reexamination of The Apprentice and the role of The Apprentice in creating this myth around him, this big lie about him. Um, he was a TV star, and he kind of still is, although he's not rating very well. Have you noticed this? Trump does not rate anymore. Mm -hmm. I've, I've actually, like, because, uh, you know, TVs are always on in the newsroom. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed that they cut away. They, they, don't, cut they, away. they, don't, they don't let him go on forever mm -hmm. and he's ever. He's not making news. Yeah, he's, it's a drag. But, but I've got to think, you know, um, whoever it is in 2020, they have to have that TV magnetism. They have to have that TV star power. I'm not saying Kasich does or doesn't. Um, maybe he's smart to try to be on TV in order to, to get practice. I don't know. Uh, anybody who wants to run 2020 or has a dream about 2020 should probably be practicing. But Kasich was a, a long-time fill-in for uh, O'Reilly. Yeah, well, yeah, well that, does, that tells you how the world's changed, yeah. right? Kasich was a Fox News guy. Yeah, he was a <laughs> fill-in for O'Reilly, then he had he, his own show. He had his own show for yeah. years. He had a yeah. weekend show for years called Heartland. I used to like it a lot. Heartland, yeah. What a world now where he's not suitable for Fox News. Uh, yeah. You know, just actually, it says more about how Fox News and the, the party is, has changed. Changed. Uh, I had a late night host say to me recently that he's he's noticed how the candidates are um, are getting better. Some of the Democrats, some of the Democrats are getting media training, they're practicing, they're getting ready. It's interesting how all of these platforms, uh, not just cable news, but, you know, I wrote about Colbert and the Colbert primary, you know, how all of these different versions of television are playing such a role in our politics. Um, 
even though we've talked about Facebook and Google and they're incredibly powerful and incredibly important, we're still this society that's addicted to our screens, to our to videos on our screens. We still we're still a television society in so many ways. Yeah, I think it was a uh, rep uh, Ilhan. And I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Ilhan Omar who um, had that tweet earlier today um, about uh, Lindsey Graham saying they got him. He's compromised. That tweet was not from today. It wasn't from today. <laughs> the, but the media appearance was. From but today. the media appearance was today so where some of your tweet. colleagues um, appropriately pressed her and insisted, what are you talking Where's your about? evidence? What do you mean by that? Um, and she was rather slippery. There's uh, some question as to whether or not she was referring to rumors that Lindsey Graham might uh, about his sexual orientation. My immediate thought was that it was some kind of insinuation that he had been co-opted by the Russians. By the Russians. Um, it's such trash. And and why is it that a, I understand it's a popular um, far left uh, conspiracy theory. Far? But for a, okay, all right. <laughs> we, pop, we don't know how far. Uh, it, no, but I mean, it, <laughs> sure. well, yeah. I'd like to hope that not everybody on the left subscribes to that theory. No, but I don't certainly so. there are some that can subscribe to this conspiracy theory. Why a congresswoman thinks it's appropriate to to um, promote that conspiracy theory is a, is a scary thing. Ted Cruz was an enemy of Donald Trump who's come around to be an ally. I don't hear any conspiracy theories about why other than it's opportunistic. Yeah, simplest answer. Yeah, but Lindsey Graham, for some reason, is being, you know, there's, there's a focus on him in particular. He's compromised. Yeah. But I think your point I, is important. It's a strange thing, by the way, that he would be doing the bidding of the FSB because he doesn't want everyone to think he's gay because everyone already thinks he's gay. <laughs> I mean, it's an incredible <laughs> thing. I mean, it, it, I, I thought, by the way, the CNN anchors, and I don't remember who they were, but so Brian poppy, obviously does. They were fantastic. And uh -huh. I have ne that, that the incredulity on the face of both of those people. And of course, she came back today and said, no, good God, that's on your mind, not on mine. I would never suggest such a thing. But if you watch her answer the question of what are you implying? This stammering answer is something else. And she is not ready for prime time. I mean, she, I, I hope in a year from now, she's better media trained than she was today because it was just a really shameful performance. In that word salad, she mentions funding, polling, mm -hmm. and Republican leadership. Mm -hmm. Those are the three things, and, and all of which, none of which makes sense, none of which are even remotely um, substantially based. There's no evidence behind them. But you could tell she's dissembling to find some some word that's not the, the one that's on the front of her mind. And that's the, that's the cool and the, the challenging thing about being a TV anchor. Mm -hmm. You know, it's live journalism. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all this thing about live journalism now, all these live events, everyone goes and sits and uh, watches people on stage. That's what we do 24 hours a day. You know, you do live journalism. You're with a guest. You're asking them questions. Sometimes, you know, taking it personally as someone who's been doing it for five years on TV and still learning how to do it. Sometimes you fall on your face. You don't challenge someone enough or you you seem like you're going too hard. Um, but when you get it right, it, you know, like in this case we're talking about, it's it's uh, it's really a it's a powerful thing. It's a it's what makes the medium of television special. And it shows that you're being an advocate for the audience. You're being an advocate for the viewer at home who deserves to hear hopefully clear answers and accurate answers from the guests. That's kind of my answer, by the way, when, when it's, you know, why are you interviewing Rudy Giuliani? Why is Cuomo interviewing Rudy? Well, Cuomo's interviewing Rudy because Rudy made a lot of news in that interview. Mm -hmm. And Cuomo challenged the heck out of Rudy. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, that's powerful on television. Oftentimes, we, we don't live up to that. And we can keep getting better. But that's the opportunity on TV that I love to try to live up to on CNN. 
Yeah. Well, Brian, I don't want to keep you much longer. Maybe there's something else you want to say before you exit the room, but uh, I want to let you go. Oh, I don't know. Wait, is that, a, is that a cube or something? What is that? No, it's an invitation. <laughs> it's an invitation. <laughs> we, you, we, could, you could talk to me about Russia, perhaps, and tell me why it's the most important story, and I should definitely be paying attention, I know and you I shouldn't don't be think so skeptical. Is. I wanted to introduce it at the very end so people would come back the next time you come back and we talk some more, because um, I've enjoyed our conversation a great Wait, deal. wait, wait. Am I supposed to say that Russia's the most important story in the world? No, I was being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, is that the position I'm, I'm taking? Actually, no, there's lots of things that I do on this. They're like bits. I'm very bad at sarcasm. <laughs> um, no one actually knows when I'm being sarcastic. I, yeah, like, um, I, but I am definitely skeptical of the Russian collusion. You don't want. You don't want to. Hold on. You don't want to get to the truth. Um, I, I do want to. <laughs> I do want to get to the truth. I'm interested in the truth passionately. Um, I just there's so much supposition and speculation, and I don't know that we're getting any closer to it. I've been told incessantly since November of 2016 that the other shoe is about to drop and it's all about to hit the fan and this is it and and this is the moment but, but you're and, supposed uh, to apply skepticism what happened are. to your skepticism no I'm applying skepticism Good. and I'm saying that particular narrative doesn't doesn't strike me as plausible until I see some more detail and evidence and I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge there's plenty I do not know but extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and thus far I see a lot of hopeful optimism that they'll be able to impeach the president in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a, a, a good way to sort of power a, a narrative about a sleeper president Manchurian candidate, which just seems hard to sustain uh, a belief in that, rooted in facts. I'm not the head of a newsroom, but if I was, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. I'll say it anyway. Go. <laughs> no, I'll it. say it anyway. Do it. I'll say it anyway. Say it. Come on. If I got to, if I, if I had two reporters mm -hmm. who had, didn't have assignments for the day or for the week, I would definitely want at least one of those reporters to be focusing on what's going on today in the administration. Mm -hmm. What's going on today in the agencies and what's yeah. going on today in the government. Mm -hmm. I think I have more interest in the Russia story than you do. Uh, and I would probably assign one of those reporters to, to the Russia story. Mm -hmm. But I would assign the other reporter to... Um, to whatever is going on inside the government today. Mm -hmm. I think when we look back at the, the Trump years, what, what's going on today is probably going to be more relevant to most Americans' lives than whatever happened with the attack against the country yeah. before Election Day. And, and I say that because I always go back to what Chris Whipple said. Uh, sorry, what Ryan's Priebus said to Chris Whipple. Chris Whipple, the author of this famous book about chiefs of staff. Ryan's Priebus, after getting out of the White House, said, whatever you've heard, however crazy it is, it's 50 times worse. Uh-huh. And I just, I want more stories about that. Mm -hmm. I like that. And maybe it's not worse. Maybe it's better, right? I want stories about what is going on inside today. <laughs> I used to say, I also want to get to the bottom of Russia. <laughs> I, I used to say before. Can I have both? No, you can. I used to say before <laughs> the president was elected that I am not, I'm not uniquely concerned about Donald Trump because I don't think it's as bad as you suspect. I fear that it is worse than you could imagine. Which is to say <laughs> that there are systemic problems in our in our government, in our society that quite frankly, have been developing and growing across multiple administrations. And mm. if you're not able to recognize those things when it's the guy that you like or the gal that you like, mm. um, you might find yourself in a world of trouble. I think the last president expanded executive power in ways that are dangerous. And we are actually seeing the manifestation of that. And if we think that the problem is uniquely this guy and not perhaps curtailment of the office is the remedy, I think that we are in for a world of hurt, and I don't want us to miss that insight. I think that is the big story of the Trump administration. Let's start over. 
With the what do you mean? Just time machine? What do you mean? Yeah, let's start over. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, there's like the Bill and Ted thing about this, that. No, this, <laughs> this, blo- this bloated government. Yeah. Let's just uh, let's start from scratch. Yeah, it's already shut down. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when we reboot it, how can we? Re- <laughs> certainly speaking his language. Turn off the computer and turn it back on. Brian Stelter, my very favorite guest on All this podcast. All right. There you go. Anarchist. I was going to say, Brian, thank you for coming. But Fisher, you were going to say something. I, got to, I just got, to, we, we, we sometimes will do a, a segment oh. called Some Idiot Wrote This at the end of the show. <laughs> well, I can't, get, I can't say anything stupid I, I already have. So yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I just wanted That's to, include, but, but I've got something fun that kind of ties back into something we were talking about earlier uh, when Michael brought up Brent Bozell, who's actually Brent Bozell III. His father was junior. Uh, the oh. Media Research Center is still go, is still a thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they, They're yeah. always on my ass. Newsbusters, I it's love called Newsbusters. Yeah, so the uh, Media Research Center has a Mediterranean cruise that goes on for 11 days coming up later this year. And the headliners are Brent Bozell, Alan West, uh, Jason Chaffetz, two former congressmen, and wait for it, Joe Piscopo. Boom. Oh, oh I, love wow. I might show up for that now. There you go. So they I couldn't, they couldn't get Tim Kazarinsky? Was he not, was he not around? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a deep one. That's yeah. a deep cut. Yes. Deep cut, 80s references. They always no are. So, but that's all I got. Thank you. I like to view Brent Bozell as one of my publicists. You know, they're always, mm. uh, they're always writing about my show, always writing about what I've said. Sometimes they quote my guests, presumably because they're outraged, but they just share the quotes. And I think, thank you for the share. Thanks for, yeah, it's thanks for spreading it, the word. Keeping it out there. Love that. They, they really read tweet Carl Bernstein. I guess they're offended, but hey, thanks for sharing the quote. All right. Well, I think we're done here. Great. Thanks Bye. so much, Brian. Thank you. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.